Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 71, December 2023. The History of Silent Reading. A conversation with Paul Sanger. Hello, Paul Meyer here. This is my final podcast before the holidays, so happy holidays to all my listeners. Marking the season, I'm offering my Accents and Dialects for Stage and Screen, the deluxe streaming edition, for $10 off through January 5th. 27 of the Accents and Dialects actors need most. Get the same discount at paulmeyer.com for the printed version and on your iTunes account if you prefer the iTunes ebook, Apple book version. And as another little gift, as in previous years, I've made my audiobook reading of Charles Dickens' beloved A Christmas Carol absolutely free until January 5th. Go to paulmeyer.com slash christmascarol, all lowercase, no spaces. This is Dickens' original and uncut text. Lots of responses to the last podcast with Karen Burgos on American English in Colonial Times. Thanks to all who wrote. Stephen from Orlando, Florida asked, do you believe the non-roticism and other characteristics of the nascent RP accent that remained in some areas of the States is a result of the Royalists during the Revolutionary War maintaining their allegiance to the Crown? <laughs> Great question, Stephen. Let's see if Karen has theories on that one. Now, our quiz. Guess that accent. Last time I played this clip from the Idea Archive and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. Well, here is a story for you. Sarah Perry was a veterinary nurse who had been working daily at an old zoo in deserted a district, district of the territory. So she was very happy to start a new job at Sport Private Practice in North Square near the Duck Street Tower. So what do you think? If you guessed Egypt... Congratulations, it was Ideas Egypt 5, contributed by senior editor Sarah Nichols. To learn more about the speaker, go to the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar of dialectsarchive.com, then Africa, then Egypt. Thanks again, Sarah. Now this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend his formative years? So I had a story, right, from a cattle force days. Right, so we're talking about like five or six years ago, right? When I was like a uh, lance corporal coming up in Califors where Dan was, I was saying your boy had to be a badass to make your name now to get lance corporal. So anyway, I never tell this story before though. You know this one before? Yeah. Now back in the day, first battalion and second battalion do the do the do, do cross, you know what I'm saying? They do mesh, you know what I'm saying? It's real rab. So here all going on. A little bit hard to understand for some of us. What's your guess? Get the answer next time. By the way, if you aren't listening to me on paulmeyer.com, switch over now. And from the other services menu tab, select In a Manner of Speaking, then click episode number 71. You'll find extras there not available on any other podcast channel. My guest this month is Paul Sanger. I don't think I've ever met anyone who defined the term antiquarian quite as well as Professor Sanger. Since 2013, he has been curator of rare books, emeritus, at Chicago's Newbury Library. Welcome, Paul. Welcome to In a Manner of Speaking. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. The uh, dueling Pauls today. 
Paul Meyer, Paul Sanger. So the fascinating story we're exploring today, Paul, concerns the fact that I learned uh, just a few years ago that for most of the time in human history, after writing was invented, the act of reading was an oral experience. People read aloud even when alone and, and reading just for themselves. And your amazing book, which I'm sort of halfway through, Space Between Words, The Origins of Silent Reading, recounts that fascinating history. So you suggest that it was in medieval times, as late as that, when scribes started putting spaces between words, the, the path to silent reading in the modern way really opened up. So let's let's have some of those details of the history of silent reading and of, and of oral reading. I had just completed a course in medieval paleography at the University of Chicago, given by Julian Brown. And the first exercises that he gave us were of classical texts written without space between words. Mm -hmm. This puzzled me. I asked Professor Brown why Romans wrote without space between words, and he paused for a moment. And then he said very sagely, because the Greeks did, and the Romans emulated the Greeks in almost everything. We progressed into the Middle Ages, and we saw the steady intrusion into space. It puzzled me as to how this process took place, and I filed that away. But as I was selecting books in cognitive psychology, I read book reviews about psychologists who in laboratory experiments, suppressed the space between words. And I looked at their, um, at their illustrations, and immediately they popped up into my mind the images of books of the 5th and 6th century that were written in continuous writing or scriptura continua. And I was very interested in what the psychologists had to say about the consequences of reading without word spaces. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were definite effects on eye movement and definite increased orality. It prompts you to be oral, does it? Yes. And that one sounded out, the, and this was done on the basis of the crude experiments of 30 or 40 years ago. But... Since that time, of course, we now have brain scans. See the activity in of the brain when people read. Mm -hmm. I um, read up as much as was done in, when I published a book. The, such experiments indicated that there were differences, cognitive differences, between uh, readers of different scripts. In general, the people in cognitive psychology at that time were totally ignorant of the fact that the Romans read without word spaces. Mm. It was quite accidental that they had, in part, recreated the page format of 2,000 years ago. Without knowing they that they were doing that. Amazing. They didn't know what they were doing. And they didn't do it exactly because they didn't put it in all capital letters and they retained punctuation and certain other space aids, but it was largely very similar in general appearance to a Latin page or Greek page of the fifth century. Now, there were other differences between the classical languages and modern English. They were working on the whole 30 years ago, 
with English texts. And English, of course, has conventions of word order that are much more regular than that of ancient Latin and Greek. And so one found when one applied their insights to ancient texts that the problems a reader encountered in reading an ancient text at the time of St. Augustine were even more profound than reading an English language text without word separation, because the order of the words was much more variable. Why were the ancient texts unseparated? It seems so intuitive to us today to put a space between the words. The oldest Latin inscriptions have points between words. Yes, I was reading that in your book. Julian Brown was entirely correct and wise in what he said. They eliminated those points to be more like the Greeks. For them, reading was very akin to poetry. The meter, the Orality of literature was extremely important. It was, of course, the the classic text for the Greek was Homer. Virgil was the uh, Roman equivalent. And prose texts were never the center of literacy. So culturally, there was a proclivity or or leaning towards reading aloud in the first place, regardless that it takes a little bit longer to do so. Culturally, there were things that reinforced the act of reading as an oral experience. Right. I mean, it was a difficult task, but it was was how one sounded out a text and discovered the rhythms and meters that the author had imbued to that text. Yes. There's a celebrated professor at Harvard, I forgot his name, who who has argued that, in fact, for Greek poetry, scriptura continua led to a discovery of meters that was more efficacious than the modern format. When I'm reading Shakespeare aloud uh, to discover what he has to say in a particular text, I want to read it aloud for precisely that reason. Right. Some people have misunderstood what I've said. I didn't say that they couldn't read silently. Right. Even if they read for one reason or another, they didn't want to disturb people close to them, or they wanted to read something that was very private, like a love letter. They did so silently, but pronouncing in their mind the words in a way that is comparable to the way that even Beethoven, when he was deaf, could hear his symphonies. They heard it in their mind. Silent reading was not rapid reading in antiquity. Yes. When Augustine saw Ambrose, his mentor, reading silently, he suggests all kinds of uh, explanations. His voice was weak. He wanted to be the privacy from the people surrounding him. He doesn't say that he read documents silently to read quickly. And, of course, we read silently because it's more rapid. Yes, And we, in, in reading, uh, take advantage of all kinds of cues like space, capitalization, punctuation, that make our reading more rapid. This seemed to me, when I wrote the book, would imply a different allocation of cognitive resources in our brain. And since I wrote my book, Stanislas Dehaene has introduced the use of 
fMRI looking into the brain, what people are reading, and in his various popular essays, explained how reading takes advantage of cognitive faculties that man has had for hundreds of thousands of years, but applied them to new tasks, the task of reading. Mm. One of those faculties is the faculty to detect red. Only certain primates and man can see the color red. We have used the introduction of red into our text was one of the hallmarks of the medieval book. Mm. And in an essay I wrote recently, I tried to make the point, which I didn't make perhaps as explicitly in Space Between Words, that the ability to highlight section text with the, with the use of rubrics, which is so characteristic of the medieval book, is something that evolved at the time of Augustine and thereafter. Rubrics means red, right? Am I right. correct in that? Exactly. And it has to do with the great influence of Alexandria and Egypt on the early Christian faith. First great Bibles, Greek Bibles of the fourth century, perhaps prepared for uh, Constantine, were divided into chapters and numbered psalms with the use of red ink. Gradually, that practice permeated Christian literacy. Let's jump now, Paul, to writing systems without vowels, the effects of vowels or vowelless text. No vowels, no spaces between words. I can see that prompting me to read aloud. Let's frame that uh, slightly differently. If you have vowels, you do not need space between words. You can yes. decode a text. Because uh, every sound was pronounced in general, for the, with a few minor exceptions. When the Romans wrote a text, the first thing was to identify the letters and the syllables to sound it out. And by enunciating it, the word was released. Mm. But if you eliminate it, if you think of a, a Latin text in Scriptura Continua, and you were to delete all the vowels, it would, be, <laughs> it would be very hard, I think, even for a Roman, if we could rejuvenate, resurrect the Roman for the yeah, occasion, yeah. to okay. read it. Hebrew, which is a language that written the Hebrew Bible without vowels, spaces are, are a necessary component of literary Hebrew. And as far as the biblical texts and even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they're all written with full word separation. Okay. And that undoubtedly had an influence on the Greeks when they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, the Psalms, other books. And in fact, the Greek texts, some of them that were found with the Dead Sea Scrolls and others that are found in Egypt, have word separation. Okay. It didn't amount to a major phenomenon until Christianity was brought to areas of Europe where the people did not speak Latin or a derivative of Latin, mm-hmm. particularly in the British Isles and in Ireland. You suggest that the act of reading silently opens the readers to the suspicion that they're reading secret, even heretical or subversive texts. So 
reading aloud back then in ancient times would have kept you above suspicion? Well, I think it certainly is a society that, I mean, we see it in our own times, don't we? It's certainly a very different world today in the access of forbidden texts on the internet compared to uh, the world I grew up, where if I had a copy of, was so fortunate as to find a copy of Lady Chatterley's Lover, I kept it in the garage under a plank. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. A teenager, I mean, you know, it's just a different world, the accessibility. So technology allows for a, a change in the way we think and the way we read and the way we experience text. In the Middle Ages, heretical uh, texts, for example, in 14th century uh, England, the Wycliffe of Bibles, vernacular Bibles, which was forbidden to translate scripture into the vernacular, were small, portable, easily concealed. Mm-hmm. And so a member of the congregation who couldn't understand the Latin service, but had a rough idea of what was going on, could, while attending a, a service in Latin, open a small book and read the gospel readings in a language he could understand. Interesting. Okay. You talk about the f- different physiological processes required for decoding a written text and say that they might vary depending on the writing conventions. Could you explain that in a little more detail? Well, a lot has happened since I wrote that book. And one of the things that really, I mean, we talk a lot today about diversity, but I think there's no greater area of scientific investigation that has been impacted by diversity than cognitive psychology and the neurosciences. Because so many people, 40 years ago, everybody who studied eye movements, uh, cognitive psychology in the laboratory, they were all English-speaking people, at least in America and Britain, who came from a, a Western European background. But today, we have many people investigating the neurosciences and cognitive psychology who are of Korean or Japanese or Chinese background. And they're often literate in those languages. And they are very sensitive to to the fact that how a language is written changes the way that we process it with our brain. And they have used the new imaging sciences to actually see in a very specific way. Japanese can be written with Chinese characters, so can Korean. But when it's written, Korean, for example, is written with an alphabet that was developed in the 15th century. That changes, and we can see it now on uh, the screen, as it were, the, the activity of the brain is different depending on the way the text is presented. Chinese people read differently. You argue that the Chinese are better silent readers because of their writing traditions. That's interesting. I think that's been demonstrated and was remarked, oh, 50, 60 years ago. The fact is now we don't have to speculate about what parts of the brain are engaged. We can actually see it. And we can see it at reasonable cost. When I wrote my book, uh, I, after I had written it, I went to speak to medical doctors at the University of Chicago as whether we could test people 
reading, uh, we could find students who were good in Latin and Greek and give them text written without space between words and to see how their brains would light up. Well, they would light up differently than reading uh, Shakespeare <laughs> with space between words mm -hmm. or reading an English translation of Virgil with space between words and punctuation and all of that. They agreed that it was possible, but they would have been terribly expensive and mm -hmm. involved taking some sort of radioactive thing, which might people might be hesitant to do to light, make their brains light up a certain way. Yes. And they recommended that I perhaps could link it to some sort of grant to request a Department of Defense funding and <laughs> present it as some way that would be useful for strategic bombing. <laughs> I declined to pursue yeah. that. My greatest pleasure in recent years is that and neuroscience people have begun to read my book. I want to pursue in the next year, if it's possible, to meet with people in Europe uh, to see whether we can possibly do some of the tests I imagined 25 years ago. Fantastic. An earlier podcast I did talked about how we learn at a very, very early age, apparently, to learn where the word and syllable boundaries are in one's own language in, when, when spoken to. And of course, when anyone who hears speech in a language they don't understand, it's all one long string of sound. So why is it we can't learn just as easily to decode word and syllable boundaries in unseparated texts? Why would we need to read such a text aloud in order to access those word and syllable boundaries? I think if you, and I, I did this actually when my uh, my younger daughter was in third grade. I had uh, an assistant prepare fairy tales, some standard fairy tale, uh, Cinderella, I think, and it took away uh, the spaces between the words, had it all typed up and xeroxed and distributed it to the class. And I asked them uh, to raise their hand when they knew what it was. And it, it, it just took longer because there were so many ambiguities as to where you would separate the words. Because if you begin with syllables, recognize letters and syllables, there are all kinds of possibilities of how you might cut it differently. And in fact, to a certain degree, that has caused certain ambiguities to exist in modern editions of classical texts. And for a classical text, as I said before, it would be even harder because the word order would be far more variable than we're accustomed to reading. Yeah. So it's it just, uh, you have to get a sense of the chunk of text of what it means and where the mm. word junctures are in order to extract the meaning. I'm still puzzled on this. In, in that there's no white space between words when we speak, it's making me think that scriptura continua, unseparated text, would be kind of the obvious choice when you're inventing a writing well, system. It wasn't to the Egyptians who, and to the Chinese, who began with a completely different assumption. Sussing out one of my current obsessions, I was uh, looking into uh, Ammianus Marcellinus, the last of the great Roman classical historians. And he actually addresses hieroglyphics because they were in these, um, what do you call them, the columns that were brought back from Egypt by the conquering armies with hieroglyphics on them. 
he comments on the superiority of the alphabet. The Romans were convinced that the flexibility that the alphabet gave writing made it far superior to the writings of the Greeks, mm. Uh, mm. to the of, the of the Egyptians, mm. and mm. that has continued. But now, as we live in the 21st century and we see the rise of China, it's less evident that a writing system based on phonetics is superior to a writing that's based ultimately on ideographs. Yes, yes. There are great advantages because when one listens to sound, the sounds are immediately recognized. The accent parts, the junctures, the links are there in our spoken speech. When you look at a, a Latin text, you can't tell whether the vowel, for example, the vowel combination A-E as a termination, as an inflected termination, is the end of one word or the beginning of another word. Yes. You can figure it out, but it, it's a slower process mm. when you go from right. Whereas the Chinese characters, once they're learned, are processed, and they're processed like, uh, in a different way. There's a commonality the way we read a text, whether it's in Chinese or in English or in Latin, but there are differences. And so if one thinks of the history of the West, my theory was in my book, Space Between Words, that putting spaces between words changed the way people processed written texts and afforded privacy, the possibility of the erotic, possibility of the erotic experience of reading, possibility of the heretical experience of reading, but also the possibility of logical analysis in the manner of St. Thomas Aquinas of the Summa Theologica. Mm. And one of the experiments I would like to do if I ever get to do these is to take Thomas and take away all the rubrics, all the numbers, and to assign a student to read it and mm. see how it's processed differently. Mm. The Koreans are very interested in this too because they're very proud of their alphabet, which in some ways a more perfect alphabetical system than exists in English, but it combines certain of the word identification features of Chinese, and they are convinced that their system of writing is the ultimate in development of an efficient conveyor of written text. Hmm. The fact that we live in a world in which is much more diverse than the world in which I grew up in, it's been very stimulating. The assumption that the alphabetical writing, you know, which I was taught in school, was the perfect form of writing, and that the Chinese and the Egyptians, they were all sort of underdeveloped. They didn't have this secret. Well, people who uh, are active in research and in, in the neurosciences, cognitive psychology today in American universities and all over the world, they're not so convinced that's true because... They are bilingual and, and have the capacity of reading a script based on other assumptions. I'm going to take a slight diversion here. Many of my listeners are oral performers and interested in increasing their sight reading skills. Voiceover performers, audiobook narrators, actors in book in hand stage readings, they all want to read aloud in a way that mimics the nature of unscripted speech. What does your research allow you to say to people who work in these fields? You, 
You you talk about parafoveal vision. That was a new word for me. What yeah. is that and how does it limit sight reading skills? Well, when the Romans read a text without a word separation, they did not read on sight. Only a very gifted slave. And the Romans often did not read themselves. They had often Greek slaves who were their uh, readers. A very good slave could read a text on sight, but it was a special talent. For most people, they engaged in what was called prilexia. They had a first reading of it. They accustomed themselves to the text. And often the texts that were being read were classical texts, which were read again and again. It would be like you were reading Hamlet. You knew the text. You had a familiarity with it. Yeah. Certainly, the space putting spaces between words made it much easier to sight read. There's no doubt about it. Tell us what parafoveal vision is. A, a That's physio- the way we, you, before you can actually see the letters, you're aware of spaces. In the, when you read uh, a text, whether you're reading it silently or aloud, you're aware of the format of the page. You're aware of capital letters. Certain features of the page are detectable beyond the range of the center of your vision, the foveal vision of 8 to 12, 14 letters in length. I see. So the, the fact that you're detecting gross signs of punctuation or formatting, spaces, yes. capital letters, paragraph marks for a medieval reader, rubrics, those are all encoded, so you already know that you're coming to the end of something. Right. Or you're right. beginning something new. Or there are quotation marks in the margins. This might be off topic, Paul, but the art of expressive reading aloud in imitation of the rhythms of speech depends on instant differentiation of the important words from the less important. Yet both the important and the less important occupy the same amount of space on the page. Uh, I was interesting to learn that articles and prepositions and conjunctions weren't always accorded the status of words in themselves in ancient times. And so uh, there was an inbuilt differentiation of the important from the unimportant. Am I remembering that right? I think that's true. And I talk about that in my book someplace, that when one separates words in a Latin text, there's certain conjunctions which are not separate words like quay at the end. There's certain enclitic elements in speech which are attached. Prepositions. Some prepositions are treated as separate words today in Latin space. Some are attached to the word. So what is the process by which one came to deciding what is a word when one edits a classical text? Well, in the end, it's to maximize the disambiguation of, of the text, to make it as clear as possible. Mm-hmm. How recently was personal reading allowed still the common practice? I have this feeling that you that you can confirm or contradict that uh, people maybe in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries were still preferring to read for pleasure aloud. I don't think they read aloud when they were by themselves particularly. The heritage of eloquence was part of our education at the beginning of the 19th century, and the claiming Cicero or oral skills were much more important than they are for us today. But still, they read silently, but especially in the lower classes, 
the peasants of in the 16th and 17th century, at the time of the Revolution, people would gather together and one person would read the Bible in Luther's translation to a group of people uh, who would understand it. I'm trying to get at the 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 date or the the this approximate century when reading aloud to oneself disappeared in the majority of people ah uh, that's that's a tricky question i think it really depends on if you think of the majority of people probably not until the 18th or 19th century mm. but for some the educated people that was different thomas aquinas the great scholastics, they read to themselves. And there, I think I quote some references uh, from the 12th century onward, where it's quite clear they're reading silently. Of course, if at that time, for example, the heretical texts that were in the vernacular were read aloud to groups of people who in many cases were illiterate. Understood. Paul, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much. I'll be sure to direct my readers to your fascinating book, even though it's very long and very detailed. It's it's a, just an, a fascinating piece of, of writing. Thank you so much for contributing. Thank you for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Paul Sanger. To learn more about him and his work, go to paulmeyer.com. Choose In a Manner of Speaking from the Other Services tab on the menu bar and click episode number 71. How do you think you do at reading a text without spaces between words? Paul and I created a little challenge on the webpage. Let me know how you did. Paul at paulmeyer.com Don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on X, formerly Twitter, at Dialect Paul. Join me again next month. My guest will be Victor Boucher. This follows on nicely from today's conversation about spaces between words. You will be intrigued to learn that what constitutes and defines the word word isn't as cut and dried as you might have imagined. I was amazed to learn that linguists cannot agree on what actually constitutes wordness. Professor Boucher will be our guide on this challenging topic next time on In a Manner of Speaking.